Welcome to Between the Vines. I'm Kevin Martin. I'm here with Jennifer Phillips Russo. We have a, uh, a special podcast today uh, in regards to our most recent and also upcoming Growers Conference, our Winter Growers Conference. If you don't know, it was a hybrid event this year, and we were about halfway through the event in that the, the virtual part has been completed, and we have an in-person part coming up on March 16th. So we wanted to take this time to give you a little teaser about what that virtual program looked like, and also a reminder that you can still register for the in-person Growers Conference on March 16th. Uh, if you do and you happen to miss the virtual events and you'd like copies of those talks in full, we'll be able to give those to you uh, at that in-person event. Um, in the meantime, this uh, we're going to share with you excerpts from the virtual event, the second virtual event we had yesterday. Uh, we had three speakers, uh, two of them special guests, Dr. Lynn Sinoski, she's an assistant professor at the School of Integrated Plant Science uh, of Horticulture at Cornell Agritech. Go uh, Big Red. We also had Brian Head. Uh, you probably know Brian Head if you're a regular of the Lake Erie Regional Grape Program as he often joins us. He's a research technologist with the Lake Erie Grape Research and Extension Center and part of the Lake Erie Regional Grape Program on the research side. And Andy Musa, our Extension Educator team member. Uh, he also joined us for the virtual event. Uh, Jen, do you want to mention anything about what everybody's going to see here today? Yes, thank you. So Dr. Lynn Sinoski started us off. She is a weed scientist at Cornell University. So she focused her section on weeds in vineyards, not just weed identification, giving out some great apps for your use so that you can help decide what tool to use to combat that pest but also upcoming research or current research and upcoming tools to help mitigate some of the weed issues that are going on in our vineyards. She also even asked for information about the honey vine milkweed, which I know a lot of you are struggling with. So she put herself out there to wanting to take some samples of it. It was a really great, everybody was engaged. She had a great presentation and like, Kevin said, you can see it in full at our in-person conference if you ask for that. Then we had Brian Head. He was discussing diseases. So we covered three different, three different categories in pest management during this virtual conference. Dr. Lynn Sinoski did weeds. Brian Head did diseases. He talked about some of the research that he's doing and new tools for your chemical toolbox that were coming out. And then we had our very own Andy Musa talking about pest identification and what you should look for and some of the thresholds. Thanks, Jen. And without further ado, I, we're going to cut to the event yesterday and enjoy. And if there's anything that you missed, uh, please feel free to register for the conference and get a copy of this event in full. I think that we should also add, if you are looking for pesticide recertification credits in categories, that you can get three for New York State DEC and six for PDA. So if you are needing some credits and categories, sign up for our in-person grower conference. Right, and just to alleviate any confusion in case that results in any, um, because growers who did who did listen to this in-person and live also received three credits as well. So the, the total conference as a package did offer six credits, but we are unable to do that unless it's a live event. So 
Uh, we hope you value the information, but unfortunately, credits won't be available. There will be plenty of opportunities for more category credits in the very near future. So uh, please join us for those if you need them. Across all commodities in the United States, and this is going to encompass our major agronomic commodities such as corn, soy, cotton, uh, we use a lot of herbicides. They, they are the predominant pesticides that are being used in the U.S. Um, this is 2012 data, uh, and we're looking at a, a billion pounds of active ingredient being applied by all user groups across commodities with herbicides representing about 60% of that. But herbicides might not always be desirable within a system, and there's a lot of reasons for that. One of those reasons is the development of herbicide resistance. But there's other injury potential and environmental concerns uh, related to herbicide use. And then another reason for maybe not uh, wanting to use herbicides or certain herbicides within a system are changing consumer perceptions or regulatory mandates that might influence um, the utility of a product. We are going to need to focus on integrating old and new technologies into more diverse weed management systems. And it's really important to understand weed identification for a lot of different reasons because weed ID, effective weed ID might help you determine why you have certain species developing in one area versus another. There's a whole bunch of guidebooks out there. Weeds of the Northeast is, is a great uh, ID book, but I get a lot of questions. Is there a phone app? Can I just take a picture? And, and is there a program that tells me what I'm looking at? And if you're not aware of them yet, yeah, there actually are. The ones that I have used and I've investigated and evaluated are called PlantNet and iNatural, as you can get them through your app store, but always double check with a reputable source uh, if you're not certain about a weed identification, such as you know, an extension specialist, a, a website that you trust, or a guide. There are some very good websites that I would suggest uh, going to. This is at the Cornell Turf Weed ID website, turfweeds.cals.cornell.edu slash plants. Another uh, tool is Virginia Tech's Weed ID website, uh, very much similar to, to the Cornell one. There's also a book out there um, that will have information about some common pests, and it might be, have been designed for annual cropping systems, but I think a lot of the information is applicable for perennial systems, and it's free. If you go to SARE's website, uh, they have a guide, a new book. You can download the PDF for free. You can order a book in print. It's called Manage Weeds on Your Farm, A Guide to Ecological Strategies. It is an excellent book. It was developed here at Cornell University uh, and definitely recommend it. All right, so now that we got that out of the way, well, what about weed control technology and what's on the horizon? Um, there's a lot of different automated weeders out there that are currently available or are in development. The FarmWise and the Nile one, they're, they're super cool autonomous robots. Right now, their units are only for annual cropping systems. Um, but the weeded unit that I'm going to actually talk about today is a, a vision-guided spray system. And it's being tested currently in perennial systems by myself and others. So with respect to electric weeders, I'm doing work in field and vegetable crops. 
um, that from a New York Farm Viability funded project, but I also, with my colleagues at Oregon State and UC Davis, just got a, an OREI grant from the USDA to look at electrical weeding in perennial crops. We got it just this fall and we're gonna be starting our first season this summer. And we're gonna be looking at this technology in perennial cropping systems, uh, primarily apples, hazelnuts, almonds, blueberries, but I'm also looking to bring it into grapes, hopefully out uh, at Claro. So the next technology we're looking at is the Weedit Quadro. And this is a newer iteration of Green Seeker technology. Uh, this detects green on brown. So it detects weeds against the soil background. Um, and it does that by detecting chlorophyll fluorescence. And then that detection information is relayed to solenoids that operate the nozzle. So when it sees a plant, it turns on the nozzle and sprays it. So it's not selective and it can spray crop plants that are detected by the sensor. So you can't necessarily just take this into um, you know, an, an annual cropping system, unless you were trying to use it with a shielded sprayer set up between rows, and then you're just spraying uh, the weeds themselves. So for our trials in 2022 and beyond, uh, we're going to look at species identity, plant size, density, and arrangement, herbicide type and rate, travel speed, and then interference, how fallen leaves or pruning clippings might uh, trigger uh, the vision guided sprayer and impact the amount of herbicide that we use and the amount of control that we get. Um, we'll also be focused on crop safety. And um, some of the reasons why we're looking at this is in part due to the changing farm labor landscape. Uh, it's shrinking. There's still a lot of labor demand in specialty crops, though. It's slowly aging. Uh, we're, you know, particularly foreign laborers. Uh, particularly in annual cropping systems, annual fruits and vegetables. Just to understand our current herbicide landscape, we aren't seeing the release of herbicides that we used to in the past. They're expensive. Uh, the physiological target sites might be limited and consolidation of chemical companies are suggested as reducing um, competitiveness and innovation. In 2000, in 2008, it cost $246 million to bring a synthetic pesticide to market. So you, so you understand uh, the cost and, and what it takes to develop something new. Just going to throw it out there with respect to herbicide shortages, uh, glufosinate and glyphosate are in short supply uh, this year. And it looks like it's, uh, the situation is going to become even worse for glyphosate because Bayer just declared a force majeure on glyphosate. And basically what a force majeure is, this is a legal term that allows uh, participants in a contract to get out without liability. So apparently there is a mechanical failure in a manufacturing plant. And it, it I, I don't have all the details and I've talked to other weed scientists, but it looks like it could potentially compound uh, already short supplies. Thank you, Lynn. Okay, I've been wanting to use this dad joke for so long. That was electrifying. I appreciate it. Are there any work on controlling honey vine milkweed? Yeah, everyone asked me about that question. And this year, be looking for people to collaborate with, with the, with the understanding of, you know, if we were going to look at something experimental, we would have to go crop destruct. You know, you can't harvest 
um, fruits off of any vines where we would explore something that's that's not currently registered. So we would be limited to register products or willingness to prop destruct. So then I would just simply add, if anybody is interested in possibly collaborating, feel free to reach out via, via email to myself and I will make sure to connect you with Lynn. Um, and I'm also interested um, in if you've got some, you know, I'm willing to come and, you know, collect fragments, uh, you know, to grow in a greenhouse to do experimental studies there. What tips do you have for maximizing the effectiveness of contacts, like weed size, rates, additives, et cetera, specifically glyphosate and glufosinate? Yeah. So with products like glyphosate and glufosinate, first of all, use them strategically. Um, know what weeds you have and, and know what weeds that you could be control with other products effectively and know what, what weeds you absolutely need your glyphosate and glufosinate for. You want to get them when they are small and you want to use the adjuvants that are recommended on the herbicide labels. Do not skimp on adjuvants. You know, make sure you're following those recommendations. Make sure your weeds are not stressed. Um, with, with, you know, particularly with products like, like glyphosate, you know, when, when, if it gets dry and it gets hot, you are, you're not getting the, the, the activity level that you need. Do not stress plants will not respond particularly well. So, you know, get the plants while they're succulent, make sure they're, they're not stressed. Um, if you're going to be going in with contact, alternate contact herbicides, Make sure, you know, you're getting the coverage that you need. Again, get them small. If you're going to be investigating tank mixes that you haven't used before, obviously read the label and ensure that the products are compatible tank mix partners to those tests, you know, those mixed tests, um, you know, and again, understand what kind of adjuvants they might have different adjuvant requirements and one label might have specific recommendations as with respect to adjuvant use in tank mix. Um, and you know, the other thing is residual herbicides. You can get residual herbicides down and activated. Talk to your dealers now, understand what the situation is going to be like, get in early, you know, make sure you're using the right, the, the, the effective rate against the, the effective species. Make sure you're targeting your species. This is where weed ID comes is so important. Make sure you're, you're know what you're dealing with and how they're going to respond to whatever strategy you're using. Brian is the research technologist with the Lake Erie Grape, Grape Research and Extension Center in Northeast PA. He is well known to the LERGP team and we appreciate all of his research and efforts that he does. And thank you for being here today to present. I'm gonna leave my personal video off because uh, I went to bed with wet hair last night and I don't want it to be a distraction uh, to the presentation. Um, I'll be talking about diseases and Andy will be covering insects. Uh, and I'll, I'll base, this is basically a review. I'll be going through the major diseases, uh, starting with, you know, from start to finish from opsis, uh, then going on to black rot, powdery mildew, downy mildew, and then finally talking a little bit about, uh, botrytis and bunch rot and sour rot at the end for any wine grape growers out there. As you know, the first thing we deal with every year is Phomopsis. Phomopsis viticola is a fungus that causes uh, these lesions on shoots and canes. This is uh, basically what you're going to be seeing right now, uh, only without the bud swell there, <laughs> at least hopefully not yet. Um, <clears throat> and 
This is how this pathogen overwinters. It overwinters primarily in wood, uh, in lesions in wood that occurred in prior years last year uh, on this particular year old cane, but also, and especially I should say in older wood and uh, particularly uh, perniciously in deadwood. Deadwood is probably the largest source of inoculum for this pathogen, for this, uh, this disease. Um, some non-chemical cultural control is the first line of defense, all right? Now, as I mentioned, the pathogen overwinters in wood, um, primarily in older and dead wood, uh, but in all different types of wood. And different uh, uh, pruning systems are going to retain more or less older wood. A spur pruning system, as we know, requires cordons, retains more old wood, and therefore retains more inoculum or more of the pathogen. In order to control it, um, seasonal sprays of Captan, Makazeb, and Zyrum, I think, are best. They are very effective. We don't have to worry about resistance developing to them, and they can be used multiple times throughout the season, particularly early in the season now to, to, uh, to deal with Phomopsis. This early uh, pre-bloom spray at three to five or three to six inch shoots is actually the most important spray for protecting against Phomopsis for the entire season. Delayed dormant sprays of copper and lime sulfur might be an option in particularly in organic systems where you don't have access to these other, other fungicides like uh, Captan, Mancozeb, and Zyra. On to black rot. Uh, this is caused by a fungus as well, Guignardia bidwellii, causes uh, disease on all green tissues of the vine. And of course, the most familiar part of that is what we see uh, on, our, on our clusters, on our fruit. One of the best ways to control this disease non-chemically is, is getting those things out of the trellis. That early spray for Phomopsis using Captan, Mancozeb, or Zyrum will also control early black rot. So as far as chemical and cultural control, as I already mentioned, sanitation of the trellis is very important for non-chemical control. Canopy management, as far as uh, wine grapes are concerned, uh, to maximize air, light, and pesticide penetration into the fruit zone is another way to uh, non-chemically assist your chemical programs to control this disease. For fungicides, the sterile inhibitors are top-notch. All right, on to powdery mildew. Also caused by a fungus or a siphonicator. Um, like black rot, it hits all green tissues of the vine, leaves, stems, berries, you name it. Immediate pre-bloom and first post-bloom spray are gonna be your most important sprays for the natives, for the Concords, the Niagara's, okay? Sensitive hybrids and vinifera, you're gonna require another spray, okay? To at least go to that top-notch system um, through the second post-bloom spray and use best materials, full rates, best coverage, tightest intervals, 10 to 14 days, 10 days is better than 14. But leaf removal and shoot thinning can really maximize air circulation, sun exposure, and pesticide penetration um, into that fruit zone and, and make your chemical programs much more effective. Newer materials, I'll, I'll mention two of them here for powdery mildew control. Um, Sevia has been out for a few years. Um, it's a sterile biosynthesis inhibitor, FRAC3. Um, but it has just gotten a new label that will now make it available on all varieties. Before, you could only use it on vinifera. It's now available 
the, the new label, the new 2022 label has no varietal restrictions. So you can use it on Concord and, and hybrids now. It provides excellent black rot control and good to very good uh, powdery mildew control in the trials I've seen. Gatton is also a new powdery mildew material. The, one of the, the greatest advantages here is that it's a, a new frac group, U13. We don't have any other chemistries uh, uh, for powdery mildew control in that frac group. So uh, good resistance management material here. And it's also provided excellent results for powdery mildew control in the New York trials that I've seen. Lots of uh, old standards and alternatives that can be used to control powdery mildew. All right, moving on to downy mildew. This is a disease uh, that primarily is a problem in wet seasons. Um, this is, these are typical uh, signs of what you'd see on early in the season on leaves. Uh, you see kind of a, a yellow oil spot symptom on the top. You turn the leaf over and uh, directly coinciding with that spot, that yellow oil spot on top, you're gonna see that white downy sporulation underneath, very diagnostic of the disease on leaves. This is what it looks like on shoots. Again, like the other diseases, it can affect all green tissues of the vine, leaves, shoots, berries, you name it. Cultural control for downy mildew, again, the same as all the other diseases. Reduce the, the environment for disease, especially around clusters with good canopy management. Last but not least, I wanna talk about botrytis bunch rot control and then a little bit about sour rot control. This is a late season condition, generally. Sometimes, you know, in really wet seasons, we can see botrytis popping up earlier in the season around bloom, and it can be a problem around bloom, uh, especially on susceptible wine varieties. Um, but it is generally a late season condition that we, we see a pop up, and particularly on varieties, on wine varieties with uh, compact clusters. One of the best ways to control this disease, and easier said than done, is to prevent injury to the fruit. So controlling botrytis with these botryticides can help control bunch rots and sour rots as well. I'm not going to go into all the materials here, but suffice to say, we have a lot of different frac groups involved here in uh, botrytis control, and uh, rotation should be a fairly easy thing. Um, some of the cultural controls for bunch rot, and I, and I would have to say that of all the diseases we've discussed this morning, um, cultural control is more important for controlling bunch rot than, than all of these other diseases. You can go a long way to controlling bunch rot with, with cultural non-chemical control measures. All right. Last but not least, I want to talk about sour rot. Um, Related to bunch rot, of course, a lot of the controls I already described are going to go a long way to controlling sour rot. Um, because fruit flies are essential, uh, applying insecticides then becomes a, a, a great way to controlling sour rot. Uh, and it can be very effective uh, if it's applied in a timely fashion. You're on, Andy, from LERGP, our team representative and IPM from Penn State University. Thank you. So the first insect I'm going to uh, touch on is spotted lanternfly. Now, I don't want anybody to get uh, too nervous with this because we don't have this insect here yet. But uh, I just wanted to talk about this a little to keep it uh, in the forefront because um, we don't have it yet. But 
uh, it's not a matter of if we get it, but when. Uh, so it's important that growers know how to identify the different life stages of the spotted lanternfly. So here um, you can see the uh, egg mass and that sort of looks like a, a, a splotch of mud. So know how to identify the egg mass, go out there and look uh, in your vineyards. Uh, also the uh, different life stages, there's three life stages, egg, there's nymphal stage, and then there's the adult. If you do pick this insect up or you suspect that you do, uh, contact anybody in the grape team. Um, also, uh, you can report this uh, online to the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture or in New York to DEC. They have a um, website where you can go on and, and report that you um, found this insect. So when I'm talking about insect management, the first thing that the growers should have is the um, latest pest management, New York and PA pest management guidelines for grapes. Again, scouting recommendations, can't emphasize this enough. Hopefully you're out there at least weekly throughout the season. Uh, the more times you're out there is actually better, um, especially if you, you find hot spots of insects or diseases, you detect problems. Uh, what I mean by hot spots is, you know, border areas uh, around vineyards, low areas in vineyards. And make sure that you, you're, you're keeping good scouting records when you're out there and good spray records, because then at the end of the season or even during the season, you can compare, um, you know, what you're spraying and how effective uh, that is. And then you build up a history of where these pests are occurring in, in your different blocks. So keep, keep good scouting records and spray records on the top left you see this uh this is a great flea beetle or steely beetle they're shiny blue and uh during the bud swell stage both the great flea beetle and the climbing cutworm larvae these two are ones that will feed on uh great buds as they swell and if you're out there scouting and you have uh two percent or more of bud injury then that would um, warranty a spray uh at about the three between the three and the 12 inch stage is, is when you're uh, likely to see these other two uh, insects. These insects, um, the one on the top here is a banded grape bug. And the one on the bottom is this Ligochorus. Early in the season, what they'll do is they'll feed on the uh, flower cluster stems, uh, the pedicel or the flower clustered itself, or even on the rachis. And so you wanna scout for those nymphs uh, in the flower clusters, look for, in the flower, flower clusters and the shoot tips. Uh, one way to do this, uh, they're very difficult to see. Uh, so one way to do this is maybe go out there with a white paper plate and tap the shoots and those nymphs should fall out onto the paper plate and then you can get an idea of um, if you have them and maybe how many. Uh, crop loss levels when, when we, become concerned at, about these. Uh, Greg Loeb did uh, a lot of research on this. And if you find more than one nymph for 10 shoots, then that would warrant a spray. Uh, about the three to five inch stage, uh, you could start looking for this insect, the great plume moth. Another insect that um, uh, I've seen very rarely that growers will put a spray on uh, is with this great tumid gall maker or the, the tomato gall. Uh, and the reason it's called that is because uh, feeding by the um, larvae in the tissue will cause these formations of these red uh, gall-like structures. 
Again, the next two insects are uh, also cause galls or girdles on the grape cane. Um, about the 10 to 12 inch stage, you're, you're probably likely to start seeing these galls. Uh, what'll happen is this uh, great cane gall maker, it's a small brown beetle with the snout and the female will sort of puncture a shoot and dig out an area, lay an egg. And then they'll usually do this above a node. And it's usually past the, uh, uh, where the last cluster is. And a very similar uh, insect is the great cane girdler. Again, about the same stage, you'll, you'll start to see this. If you go in the vineyard and you see a lot of these shoot tips sort of broken off or hanging. But again, uh, we see less great cane girdler than we do gall maker, but neither of these are insects that you would be spraying on a, on a yearly basis. Um, so it, it's important that you uh, scout your vineyards block by block. Uh, again, this is more apt to occur uh, near, near um, wood, wooded uh, edge lines and things like that. Okay, now this insect, not every, uh, not every uh, grower is going to have this, but where it does occur, it's usually an immediate pre-bloom stage, about 10 days before bloom. Uh, in areas that are sandy soils, uh, I know in Pennsylvania, uh, from Route 5 to about midway to Route 20. Uh, there's vineyards that have problems with this insect. And the thing is that this insect um, will feed on uh, grass roots. And so if you have, say, uh, grassy areas near your vineyard um, or even within the vineyard, uh, they will feed on those uh, grass roots. And then the adults come out around the time that um, these flower clusters are there about 10 days before bloom. And they come out usually in massive numbers. And these insects are, are brownish coloration with these uh, long spines on the legs. And the numbers that there are and the veracity in which they feed can really do a number on these flower clusters and, and cause a lot of economic damage. And a lot of times if, if growers aren't aware that they have this problem, They'll go back in and all of a sudden, you know, uh, they don't have any flower clusters left. So you really have to be careful uh, of this insect. Uh, make sure you're scouting regularly during this time from about 10 days before bloom to maybe two weeks after bloom. Um, the economic threshold that would warrant a spray is uh, two beetles for vine. Grape phylloxera, again, um, this is mostly for the wine grape growers. A lot of you may be aware that we also have the uh, uh, root form of grape phylloxera. And really that's the one that causes the most injury, uh, most economic damage. Okay, life stages of the berry moth. Now I know you, everybody is probably sick of hearing about the great berry moth, but I still get growers uh, contacting me that either don't know what the great berry moth injury looks like, or they'll say things like, well, I thought it was the adult that caused the injury. Well, it's not the adult, and most growers know that it's the larval stage that causes the injury. It's the larvae that we worry about. Um, the newly hatched ones are very tiny. They have a white coloration, brown to black head capsule. They crawl around um, a very short period on the berry, and they want to get into the berry as soon as they can. Uh, once they're in that berry, you miss the opportunity to control them. So it's important to time your sprays right. Scouting protocol. Uh, this is actually from um, uh, 
the bulletin 138. So if you're interested in this, uh, it explains the spat, uh, scatting protocol for berry moth and for um, grape leaf hopper. What we really concentrate on uh, is the spray in July and August. That's the second generation and the third generation of grape berry moth. And what I really want to emphasize is that at least in our area, we want to time the sprays uh, for grape berry moth for the second and third generations using the grape berry moth degree day model. And that model is in the is embedded in the uh, newest system. Uh, the grape berry moth degree day, day model, we mentioned about that. We've got quite a few um, stations uh, throughout the grape belt. So really take advantage of that, use it for the weather information, but also for the grape berry moth degree day model. And then uh, the injury, we've got, uh, depending on the time of the season, you've got uh, early on, you get the uh, berries or, or flower clusters webbed together. Later on in the season, you get this reddish coloration uh, we call stings. And later in the season, you'll get uh, uh, discoloration of berries. Uh, and uh, more or less, uh, if you feel those berries, they, are, they sort of are... Uh, uh, paper thin because all the contacts are eaten out, uh, contents are eaten out. And the other thing is shelling. Uh, a lot of growers are used to seeing this and that's another indication that you have a real bad berry moth problem. Uh, great leaf hoppers are another uh, insect pest that again, it's widespread throughout the area, but um, you don't have to spray every single year for these things. The other one is Japanese beetles. We're all used to that. Um, and this is the injury that the Japanese beetles cause. Again, um, not every year and not every block do you have to spray for these. They're more apt to cause uh, more problems in uh, thin-skinned wine varieties. And then finally, the last uh, one, Brian mentioned uh, uh, the different fruit flies. Uh, this is the uh, spotted wing, which was that invasive fruit flies, but um, common fruit flies also will spread uh, the, the different bacteria that will cause uh, sour rot. So Brian already talked about that. So insect control with uh, spraying for Drosophila is important in controlling sour rot. And that's usually, it's not a problem on usually Concord, but on your tight clustered uh, wine varieties. And with that, I'm gonna end uh, just to remind growers that spotted lanternfly is coming here. Uh, it's not here yet. So make sure you'll be able to identify it and let us know uh, if you suspect that um, you have picked up uh, spotted lanternfly. So with that, I'm done. All right, I want to take this last moment to thank all of the presenters for joining us. Uh, in addition to that, please feel free, as we've reminded you a couple times at the beginning, to register for the in-person event. You can do that at lergp.cce.cornell.edu and you can register on the events page for that in-person event. Thank you all for joining us. We'll be back next week, I believe, with some more regularly scheduled programming. I hope you enjoyed this, this special event, and we'll see you next week. Have a great week, everyone.